The Apostle John recording for us what Moses records in Genesis chapter 18, John chapter 13, the first 17 verses, John 13, 1 through 17. And by the same Spirit, the Apostle records this. And before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things... Happy are ye if ye do them. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. In John 13 and verse 1, we read this. Now before, and I'm highlighting the word before, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That's the second one I want to highlight. Now the scripture tells us that this foot washing event was during the evening hours of the upper room Passover feast where Jesus and his disciples had communed together, gathered together, for the last time before his crucifixion. Now they didn't know it was the last time. They were unaware that Judas was going to betray the Lord Christ. Even though the Lord had told them, there is one at the table whose hand is with me, who is eating even at the sop of my table that will betray me. And everyone just couldn't believe it, that someone would do such a horrible thing. But the literal translation of verse 1, where it seems to insinuate that this meeting was held before the feast actually should be translated, now Jesus having known before the feast of the Passover that his hour was to come. In other words, Jesus knew that his hour had come before he was even celebrating the Passover. In fact, he knew that this was why he came. He had been preparing for his removal out of the world so that he might conquer the entire world. And that's an important idea to understand. He is removing himself through the atonement, through the coronation, out of the world, in order that he might, at Pentecost, begin the conquering of the world. Note he was headed toward the Father. And at the throne room of the Father, according to Daniel chapter 7, he would receive honor and glory, dominion and a kingdom. And this is what he was telling the disciples throughout his ministry, that the kingdom was at hand. The kingdom had come unto you. If I cast out devils by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come unto you. 
It was always the, the message of the kingdom. The kingdom. It was at hand. The purpose of his coming was that he might depart. He was not to stay. He had to leave. That he would depart after his victory at the cross in order to receive the power of the kingdom and then to translate that power to his disciples to begin the reconstruction of the world according to the kingdom model. This was the purpose of his coming. He would now fulfill his mission at the cross as the sacrificial lamb in order to atone for his people liberating them from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, the grave and hell itself, and to declare himself as the conquering king over the entire global order, and so that his people would declare the same, that he was the conquering Christ. So Christ's mission was total. It wasn't, it wasn't compartmentalized. In other words, it wasn't just for your salvation or for yours or for mine. It was a total comprehensive conquering salvation. Christ's mission was total. It was not only a total comprehensive salvation for his people, but it was a total and comprehensive salvation and recalibration of the entire global order on a global scale. John's testimony coincides with the other testimonies of Scripture, where at the Passover feast, at this very feast where they were celebrating the liberation of Israel from Pharaoh, At this very feast, we see that Judas sets out to betray him. Right in the midst of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Nothing could be more blasphemous. Nothing could be more bitter. Nothing could be more betraying. And it was at that feast, this final feast, that Jesus would inaugurate the final Last Supper, where Jesus then proceeds to wash the feet of his disciples after the supper had ended. Now verse 1 sets the stage for what the Lord was about to do. But one of the incredible statements of John's epistle here is that Jesus loved his own, having loved his own. The motivation behind what he was doing, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Everything that the Lord was to experience, his entire mission, and the reason for his incarnation is encapsulated in this portion of verse 1. He loved his own, and he loved them unto the end. And he loved them in that intensity, that divine intensity, that he would go to the cross to liberate them, to save them, and to incorporate them in his own body. And this is the reason behind the salvation of the elect. Unconditional divine love. He loved them, in other words, to the extent that he would sacrifice himself, which he didn't have to do. Because when he was in his primeval glory, in the bosom of the Father, before his incarnation, before he took upon himself the sin of his people, before he had to suffer and be sacrificed and and die, and bear upon himself the wrath of God Almighty for all of the sins of all of his people throughout all of the ages... He didn't have to do it. And yet he covenants with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Within the triune Godhead, they make a pact. They make a covenant to do this thing, which the world is still trying to come to terms with and contemplate. Part of the plan of Christ's global dominion quest hinged upon the establishment of his holy army. He was going to liberate his people from the bondage of sin and return unto them through their work, through their sacrifice, through their service, a world which was going to be the new Eden, this conquered world. He was going to build an army of saints. But this army couldn't be just anyone It had to be comprised of sanctified individuals, renewed men and women, renewed boys and girls who had experienced the new birth of salvation entirely, wholly trusting in Christ for their salvation and His victorious conquest at the end of the world. They had to be a certain group of individuals. They had to be sanctified. They had to be washed They had to be cleansed. 
Thus the reason for the ceremonial foot washing by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now historically, according to Hebrew tradition, this was simply, at first, initially, originally, it was simply an act of hospitality. And this is why Abraham washes the feet of his guests, perhaps knowing, maybe not knowing, perhaps having a clue who these individuals were that was actually a theophany, is a theological term. It was God himself in the pre-incarnate form. And he, seeing that he had guests, was going to be hospitable, not only washing their feet, not only pouring water out to wash their feet, but also to sacrifice an offering and feed them. This was a hospitable act. Foot washing in scripture is first introduced in Genesis chapter 18. We don't read it anywhere else. So when the Lord appears to Abraham in the plains of Mamre, when Abraham was sitting at his tent door, he lifts up his eyes and he sees three men, the theophany. And he runs and he says, let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. This was a customary greeting during the ancient world as an act of of extreme friendship and hospitality and honoring of the guests. When they walked in, they would have their feet washed. That is what was so distinct and confusing to the disciples. Because when Jesus Christ girded himself with a towel and proceeded to wash the disciples' feet, they had to be confused. Adam Clark explains the practicality of the custom. He says, in these verses we find a delightful picture of primitive hospitality. In those ancient times, shoes such as ours were not in use, and the foot was protected only by sandals or soles, which fastened round the foot with straps. It was therefore a great refreshment in so hot a country to get the feet washed at the end of a day's journey, and this is the first thing that Abraham proposes. Now, R.J. Rushton, of course, theologian R.J. Rushton, he concurs. He says, normally on arriving at a home, someone commonly a servant, that's the point, that's the key, commonly a servant, Abraham was acting as a servant, would pour water out and then wash and then dry the feet of all the visitors. And that is what was so confusing. What is so striking about this particular Passover feast at the Lord's Supper in the upper room is that there were no servants. There were no household servants to administer the washing. The room had been borrowed. Only the Lord was there. His guests were in attendance. There were, of course, the twelve apostles. But there were others. There was, there was Jesus, of course, Mary Magdalene. Uh, Lazarus was most likely there with his sister Martha and, 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 and others as well. But it seems as if there were no servants hired for the festival. Otherwise, they would have been quick to wash the feet of those in attendance. And yet it's Christ who's washing the feet. Consequently, it is plausible that there were no feet being washed upon entering into the upper room because who was going to do it? None of the disciples wanted to do it. I'm not going to lower myself to the status of a servant. So it's very plausible that when they entered for the feast, there was no foot washing. It was at the end of the feast. Because no one wanted to initiate this lowly custom. So it is upon this occasion that Jesus tends to the duty of a hired servant. And that is what made their minds explode. Here is the Master, the Lord Christ, saving individuals, miraculously healing and raising the dead. The second instance of foot washing, as we've seen in chapter 18, we find in chapter 19, there's a second washing. So we have Abraham washing the feet, and then Lot shows not only customary hospitality, but even Lot himself, following Abraham's footsteps, his uncle's footsteps, he shows himself as the heart of a servant. As the master of the house, the master of the house, he could add his his daughters to it. He does it. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, Genesis 19, 1 and following, 
And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. He was about to have them wash their feet, and he was going to bring that foot washing, just like his uncle, is what is insinuated. Foot washing at this point, is not used ceremonially. It is not used as a ceremonial commandment until the wilderness sojourn. Before that, it was only a custom. And at the wilderness sojourn, during that wilderness period, it is used then symbolically as an act of ceremonial purification. And so we see now the shift from being a custom to being a a ceremony of purification, from an act of hospitality to an act of ceremonial purification and sanctification, and that is what Christ is focusing upon. Note the commandment in Exodus 30, verse 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass to wash withal, and thou shalt put it in between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein for Aaron and his sons. Remember now, Aaron and his sons, the priests of God, the high priest and the priests of God, shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. A ceremonial foot washing. A basin of brass was made for the priest's ceremonial washing, and it was to be placed between the tabernacle and the altar. The washing was to be performed just before the priests began their official priestly administration. And that is critical to what Christ is doing. Before the priests could could enter into their duties, they had to be sanctified. They had to be washed. We see this in verse 20. When they, the priests, go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water so that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offerings made by fire unto the Lord. In other words, if they didn't wash, which was simply a ceremony, they might die. God might kill them like he did to to Aaron's two sons who thought them wiser than God, who brought strange fire in on their first day of the priestly administration that they were about to inaugurate, the first day of their their priesthood, they're, they're there with strange fire and God kills them. So what God is saying is, beware, wash, so that ye die not. And that is how serious this washing was. It was a matter of life and death. Because if the priest didn't wash, they would be killed. If they entered into their duties defiled, they would be killed. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet so that when they enter into their gospel duties, preaching the gospel as the priests of God, they would be acceptable before the Father by the action of the ceremonial washing performed by the Son. And this washing was to also symbolize the purification by Christ's atoning blood, but moreover by the washing of the word of God typified by water. Notice what God says to Ezekiel, what he will do. He says, I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. That is what Jesus was doing. Symbolically, ceremonially, but this is what he was doing. Now the next verse of Exodus 30, verse 21, repeats the threat while adding a generational aspect to this washing ceremony. Notice, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, the priests, that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Obviously, God intended this washing to continue, but not in its ceremonial form. And so the washing would then be a result of the shed blood of Christ and its sanctifying application by the Spirit poured out upon them, each of those of the elect of God, signified by the pouring out of the Spirit, the water being poured out. That was to be the substance of washing. Not a ceremonial, but a real washing. A real sanctification. A sanctification of God's people, making them sufficiently prepared for the Master's use as soldiers of Christ. 
It signified that special purification for their future priestly duties as Nazarite warriors sufficient for the battle of ideas, philosophies, and religions. There is one, however, very important distinction that must be made here. While the Nazarite warrior priest was not to drink the fruit of the vine, as we learned when we studied Samson and as we studied also Samuel, they were not to drink of the fruit of the vine until their mission of victory was secured. Once their mission was secured, then they could cut their hair, then they could drink the fruit of the vine, they could drink wine. The New Testament warrior priests, however, are now commanded to drink the wine. Well, why? What's the difference? If we're warrior Nazarite priest, what's the difference? Why can we drink wine and, and, and they couldn't? What has changed? The change comes as a result of the victory of Christ. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, celebrating not only His death until He comes, but through that death, His victory. And so whenever we celebrate that Lord's Supper, we are looking back to the victory that Christ has guaranteed, while at the same time looking forward to the victory that will be realized when every knee bows, that culmination of the victory, when every knee bows and when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at that moment, we will have seen all enemies, all rule and all authority, all principalities and all powers put under His feet. And so while the New Testament saints are rejoicing in the victory, they are still in the battle as Nazarites for a total worldwide victory. But now they're sanctified by the pouring out of the Spirit. Unlike the other gospel accounts of the Passover, John's account of the Passover focuses on this foot-washing event. And the crux of the message is simple. Sanctification for the Master's use. Let me repeat that sanctification not for your use, not on your agenda, but for the Master's use. The one who sanctifies is the one who commands. Now at this point, Judas, in conspiracy with the chief priests and scribes, he seeks to have Jesus killed. And from the beginning, it was always the chief priests and the scribes Pharisees that were seeking to silence Christ by their constant slander and accusations of blasphemy as well as other sins against God. These were Christ's primary enemies. These were Christ's adversaries. These were Christ's accusers. These were Christ's slanderers. And the main objective of these wicked men was to derail Jesus from his divine commission, making them adversaries and enemies of his work. That's what wicked men want to do. Derail the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. Derail the truth of God. In fact, when Peter protested that Christ should not go to the cross, which was the purpose that Christ had come, this was God's divine purpose that Christ would go to the cross. That was the will of God. But Peter protests. He acts as someone opposite of God's will as an adversary even, even as Jesus calls him a Satan, because he was adversarial to the divine cause that the Father had given to the Son. And this prompted Jesus to identify Peter as an adversary. The word Satan there is literally the word adversary. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So whenever we savor the things of men, we act adversarially. We are in conflict with God. So this verse teaches us that whoever or whatever sets himself against the Lord and his work is to be considered an adversary, a slanderer, a devil, a Satan, a scribe or a Pharisee. And Judas was exactly that. He was a slanderer. John 6, 70, Jesus answered them and he says, Have not I chosen you twelve and one of you is a slanderer. The word devil there is literally the word slanderer. He's a devil. He knew. He knew exactly who Judas was. After the washing, John is careful to record the situation with Peter. And Peter says to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, If I wash thee not, that was no part with me. Simon Peter, impetuous as he was, 
realizes what Jesus is saying and he says, not my feet only, Lord, but my hands and my my head. Jesus says to him, that is washed needs not to save, to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. He identifies again that there is someone in the midst, right in the middle of the twelve. And every time Judas Iscariot is identified as Judas Iscariot, he's got the tagline, one of the twelve. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, ye are not all clean. Now Christ's declaration at this point is very important, extremely important. Although all of these men had their feet washed, including Judas, think about this, he remains unclean. He may have been reformed, but he was never renewed. He may have become another creature, but he had not yet become a new creature. He was still in his sins, even though he shared in the ceremonial washing, because ceremonial washings or any ceremonials, or any genuflecting of any kind, does not make a man a Christian. And this indicates that while his outward show appeared to be sanctified, because he was washed along with the twelve, Judas was actually an unregenerate reprobate. So what do we know about him? What do we know about this Judas Iscariot? Well, we know of him that he was in and of himself an accuser and an adversary. Jesus answered them. The literal would be read this way. Have I not chosen you twelve and one of you follows after devils? That would be the literal Greek, a more accurate translation. And who were the devils that Judas was following after? The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests and the lawyers. They were all slanderers. They were all blasphemers. We also know that Judas was a thief. We know he was a thief. Jesus knew he was a thief, but nobody else knew he was a thief. John twelve six. This said he, not that Judas cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. He was a thief. But when you look at Judas, you know, whenever you see any cartoons or any movies that depict Judas... He's got dark hair, a dark beard, beady little eyes, and you could pick him out of a crowd. No problem. Not so. When they wanted to ask the Lord, who do you think we should uh, have for the treasurer? Maybe Jesus said, well, you pick. Maybe that's how it happened. He said, well, Judas, I mean, he's the guy. We trust him like no other. You give him the money. He's, he's, he's the guy. The Greek word for thief is where we get our English word for kleptomaniac. Judas was a kleptomaniac. He was a covetous man, a robber, and a thief. We also know that he was not a redeemed man, yet he was in company of the redeemed saints. We know that he was the son of perdition. Literally, he was a child of damnation. Adam Clark again observes, he says, So we find that Judas, according to all accounts, to have been lost, and whose case at best is extremely dubious. Theologian Calmet remarks, he says, Judas became the son of perdition because of his willful malice, his abuse of the grace and instructions of Christ, and was condemned through his own avarice, perfidy, insensibility, and despair. We also know that he was a hypocrite and a liar. He was a deceiver and he was deceived. His conversation was a mere outward show without any real substance for he was never chosen by the Lord unto salvation and indeed therefore it made him a devil. John's assessment in verse 2 and the assessment of Luke 22 together also levels the blame against the priests and the scribes as co-conspirators fully guilty in the betrayal along with Judas. So Judas, by his own willful act, because of his sinful nature, by his own willful act, according to his old Adamic rebellious nature, his depraved, guilty, reprobate nature, fully culpable for his own actions, he is therefore called the son of perdition. John relates this to us in chapter 13, verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil, slanderer, accuser, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
It is in John 13 where I believe the scriptures identify how Judas was moved by his depraved and slanderous heart to betray the Lord Jesus as it was prophesied by the psalmist. In Psalm 41.9 we read this. Mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, had lifted up his heel against me. Adam Clark says this. This is either a direct prophecy of the treachery of Judas or it is a fact in David's distresses, which our Lord found so similar to the falsity of his treacherous disciple that he applies it to him in John thirteen eighteen, What we translate as mine own familiar friend is literally to be rendered the man of my peace. This man who was to me a man of peace, in other words, kissed me and thus gave the agreed on signal to my murderers that I was the person whom they should seize, hold fast and carry away. Judas was fully culpable. The devil didn't make him do it. It didn't have to make him do it. He did it on his own accord. As James writes this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This was Judas Iscariot. He was drawn away of his own lust and enticed. His lust was conceived. It brought forth sin. He betrayed the Lord Christ and it finally killed him. According to the psalmist, Judas was not only at the Passover feast during the foot washing ceremony, but also when the Lord broke the bread and gave the wine to the twelve. Note the phrase in 41.9 of the Psalms, Mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. He was right there at the communion table. One of the twelve. John seventeen twelve. In Christ's priestly prayer before the Father, before His crucifixion, He says this, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that Thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that scripture was Psalm 41. But in spite of all of this about Judas and the fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Christ's betrayal by the conspiracy of the Pharisees and chief priests, rulers of the people, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and all those who hated him. The focus of this scripture is not on Judas, but on the foot washing. That was the point. Consider the progression. First, Jesus leaves the dinner table. No more will he be dining with the disciples while on this side of the kingdom. That will come in the kingdom when it comes in power after his victorious resurrection. Next, and this is significant, he lays aside his garments. Now when the scripture talks, it does, just doesn't say things because it makes a historical point or gives you a historical narrative. Every word is significant. It doesn't just say, he put a towel around himself and bent down. And It said, first, he laid aside his garments. Now, I believe that this is symbolic. Symbolic of the fact that Jesus had to lay aside his glory and take upon himself the incarnate body, his earthly garment, laying aside his original glory to put upon himself an earthly garment so as to be ready to receive his glorified resurrected body. So he lays aside his glory that he had with the Father originally and he girds himself with a common towel, with flesh. Peter says this, as he makes an allusion to this idea of putting off or laying aside. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ had showed me. Thirdly, Jesus then takes a towel and girds himself. Now, he doesn't just take a towel and it doesn't say he wraps himself, although that's what the word really means. But he's actually girding himself. He's tying it. In this, he was giving them a clear picture of what he would accomplish by his work. He was girding himself. In fact, he was preparing himself for war. Another reference to the Nazarite priesthood. He was preparing himself both to work and to war. And he would do this by washing the elect with the water of the word and by his constant service in their behalf for their victory, glory, and inheritance while they advance the kingdom. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is working today in our behalf. 
Oh, it seems dark. It seems like the enemy is, is ratcheting up all their muster, all their forces, all their strengths. And God is laughing at them. He has them in derision. And make no mistake about it. God is seated upon the throne and He will destroy the enemies of the gospel. Later, Peter would tell the saints that they too were to gird up the loins of their mind. Make sure that they were trusting God, the loins of your mind, so that they could work and war. Notice what he says in 1 Peter 1.13. Wherefore, he says, in light of everything that I have told you thus far, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he lays aside his garments and he girds himself, ready to work, ready to war. Next, he pours water into a basin. Now John didn't have to record that, but the Spirit made him record that. Just like the Levites had to do before performing their priestly duties, they had to pour the water before they would wash their feet. This was not only an act of ceremonial cleansing and sanctification, it was an act of ordination. Christ is ordaining these men in the line of the priesthood. That's what the regeneration does. It makes us priests of God. And it is here where the disciples were being inducted into the priestly line of Levi as well as into the army of the Lord as Nazarite priests. And their duty was clear. They were now priests of the Most High God and they were to go forth in the world. But Jesus says on his resurrection day, you look for me in Galilee because I go before you. In fact, I go before you as the forerunner in everything. But there was more. There was much more. The action of the Lord was also an act, obviously, of service. He's providing a model for service. A model how the saints are to conduct themselves as they declare the gospel. Judas, look, Judas was a devil for many reasons, but primarily he was a devil because he was all about himself. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples as an act of a selfless servant and not as an overlord. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus takes occasion to use the misguided sons of Zebedee to teach them a very important lesson in Mark chapter 10. Notice, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we desire. And Jesus says to them, What would ye that I should do for you? Now, of course, he knew exactly what they were going to say, but he's using this as an example for us. Not so much for them, although it was a kick in the teeth to them, but for us. And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much pleased with James and John. It was not for them to look for their own self-glory because they were not to have that dominion position. They needed a lesson in servitude. They misunderstood the role of the Christian. They misunderstood the role of the saint. You know, congregations sometimes, when they call a pastor to serve the congregation, and they vet him, often they want to know, does the man, and this is just ironic, because they want to know, does the man have a servant's heart? Which, of course, is necessary. What I would like to see one day is that man who's being vetted by the men who are vetting them ask the entire congregation, do you have a servant's heart? If you are all priests of God, do you then have a servant's heart? But when they ask the pastor, the preacher, making sure he has a servant's heart, it exempts them from their role as servants as well. But we are all to be servants, and that's the lesson here. James and John were thinking of a place of political power, the power of kings and noblemen. And Jesus instructs them that their place and their place of all disciples is a place of service, sacrifice, and suffering 
as the followers of Christ, notice, being baptized with the same baptism as the Lord, along with the drinking cup of the affliction of Christ, yes, you will be suffering. But what do you hear today from pulpits? Be a Christian, it's rosy. Rose garden, you get anything you like, just ask God and he'll give you whatever you want. You want a new car, you don't want a Bentley, you want a Mercedes, you get it. And people flock to that message. Service, sacrifice, and suffering. That is the pathway to victory. As the people of God continue to advance the crown rights of King Jesus and the covenant of the Lord Christ. Most professors of Christianity understand the idea of service. Only a small minority actually serve. Talk about service. Christian service. Everybody's like, yeah, Christian service. Yeah, yeah. But not many really serve. Some might even understand what it means to sacrifice. But few actually do. But when it comes to suffering, oh, that's where so many are unwilling to acknowledge that this is a big part of the Christian life. No, no, no. We, we are free from suffering. And that's why you get these doctrines, of the eschatological doctrines, where some say, oh, the Great Tribulation, we're going to be out of here before it hits because we don't want to suffer. And then you have some that say, well, we'll get out of it halfway because we only want to suffer half. We only want to suffer half the time. Nobody really wants to suffer. But it's not so much the suffering that distinguishes the Christian from the wicked of the world because even the wicked of the world suffer. So what is the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian when they suffer? It's the response to the suffering. That's what separates the saint from the reprobate. Jesus then instructs the disciples further as to the duty of the saint. He says in verse 42, but then Jesus calls to them and says to them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones exercise authority upon them. Notice, but so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Jesus was exemplifying that at the foot washing. The disciples didn't understand that. You have to understand the the incredible excitement to walk with Christ thinking that he might be that promised Messiah and then seeing him do things inconceivable, turning water into wine, raising the dead, healing the sick, confounding the scribes and the Pharisees. And then for Peter, James, and John, oh my, being brought up to the Mount Transfiguration and having Christ transfigured before them, an incredible thing. They thought that they were special. And they were. But they were to be especially skilled in being a servant. That's what Christianity has missed. So when Jesus said, the chiefest, if you want to be that, you have to be the servant of all, and that was truly a revelation to these men. So if you really want to be great in the kingdom, you must become a servant. Notice verse 45. For even the Son of Man, notice, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is a lesson in Christ-like service. And that's what the foot washing was all about. He told them and then he did it. He told them what it was like to be a servant, what you needed to be as far as a servant was concerned, and then he showed them what it was about. He didn't just tell them, you know... Mom and dads, you could tell your kids all day long, this, that, and the other thing. If you're not doing it, then you're just talking to the wind. You could say all day long, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm going to follow. And then you find that, or somebody else finds out that you're not following it. It's easy to talk. Jesus didn't just talk, he did. And he showed himself a servant of all. The meaning of the foot washing event aside from its obvious topology and sanctification and the forgiveness of sins, which each of God's people do when they share the gospel, points directly to the duty of each and every child of God. The covenant duty of service, sacrifice, and suffering, which also entails humiliation. It is to this man, God says, that I look. Man who has a humble heart and who trembles at my word. That's the man 
in the woman, in the young man, in the boy, in the girl that God is looking for. Because foot washing is a humbling act. But what if Peter, well consider his protestation when Christ comes to wash his feet, he vehemently protests, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. Now we don't know really why Peter was protesting. Maybe he was embarrassed to have the master wash his feet. Uh, perhaps he was ashamed that he didn't initiate it at first. Maybe he was ashamed. No one did it. And finally Christ does it. So maybe he was even ashamed. Oh, maybe maybe I should have did that. You know what? Why is why is why is my, my my wife cleaning the toilet after she's you know nine months pregnant? Maybe I should be cleaning the toilet. Maybe I should be doing the dishes. Maybe I should be doing. Oh, maybe he was ashamed. Perhaps he thought that the Lord too holy and virtuous to do such a humbling act. Or perhaps he thought that he would wash his own feet. Well, metaphorically, this might be understood as Peter's desire to work out his own sanctification if he thought that he would wash his own feet. But whatever the reason, Peter misunderstood the crux and focus of Christ's foot washing. And so Jesus' act of foot washing symbolically illustrates the cleansing power of Christ's atonement, now we, as we have said, as we have said, by showing them how the gospel preached would wash the feet of many. And that's what you're doing. When you preach the gospel, you're actually washing the feet of many. Our ministry is all about foot washing. Because it's a dirty job. Christianity, if you're going to really be a servant, if you're going to sacrifice, it's a dirty job. And so he tells them, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Notice, not for you, but to you. You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he had sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. That's basically what it says. Happy are ye if you do them. Brothers and sisters, this is what the gospel is all about. It's all about foot washing. It's not about backbiting, slander, railings, revilings. It's not about angry debate. Not about name calling or any type of ad hominem. It's not about whisperings or tail bearing. It's about foot washing. It's about edifying one another in love as Christ has loved us, encouraging the saints in the battle of all battles. This is what it is to be a real Christian. One final observation that I must make. It is obvious that Judas was still in the room when Jesus washed the feet of the twelve because he washed their feet. We see ye are not all clean even though he washed them. It's also obvious that Judas had communed with Jesus during the Passover meal. He that eateth, this is John 13, verse 17. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. But Judas was a make-believer. And again, he looked trustworthy. He looked like a true believer. He acted like a disciple, but he was not. He even did things like a true disciple, but he was not. He was trusted as any true disciple would be trusted. And that is why he was in charge of the money, but he was a thief. He had communed with the Lord on a number of Passover occasions. This wasn't the first one. So he had communed with the Lord on a number of Passover occasions before this final meal, but was never in communion with the Lord. Well, his outward show spoke highly of his affiliation with the Lord. That's all that it was an outward affiliation without the substance of the new birth. His wickedness was hidden from the eleven men, but not from God, not from the Lord Jesus. And the reason for this is that God sees beyond the outward profession and show of faith. He looks beyond it. He sees into the most hidden parts of your life, of your mind. He goes to the very core of your soul and knows exactly who you are. 
You can fool me, you can fool your wife, you can fool your husband, you can fool your kids, your kids can fool you, you can fool mommy, you can fool daddy, but you can't fool God. And if we could only just remember that, maybe we would be able to mortify sin a whole lot easier. Because we think when we go into our hiding place and sin, that somehow, because that sin is hidden from all the other humans, it must also be hidden from God. I'm sorry. It's just not so. Judas' wickedness was hidden from the eleven, but not from God. The foot washing event was also a time for reflection. It was to be a time of self-examination. It's incredible when Jesus said, there's one at the table who is eating with me, who's going to betray me. Everyone, all 11, said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? They didn't even know themselves. They were, they, they were confused. Is it me? Because you, you, you could see into my soul. Is it me? The last one who was the betrayer, Judas finally said, is it I? You've got it. These men were at least examining themselves. Because this foot washing event is a time for self-examination, self-evaluation of just how much of a servant that we are in behalf of the Lord and in behalf of one another. You know, let me put it this way. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm serving God, I'm serving God, I'm serving... The Pharisees did the same thing. They were serving God, but they weren't helping their mothers and fathers. They were serving God, but they were not helping the people in the church. They were serving God, but they were stealing from the people in the church. They weren't ministering the gospel to the poor, the needy, the meek, and the lame, the blind, and the afflicted. No, they were all about themselves, but they were serving the Lord. It's not about serving the Lord. It's serving the Lord through His body, the saints. When you have done a service to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me, saith the Lord. If we truly profess to love and serve the Lord, we will love and serve his people. Paul tells the saints at Rome this, I beseech you in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice what Paul is saying. He's begging them. He's begging them. I beg you by the mercies of God, my brethren, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Sacrifice yourself for someone else, just like Christ did. Go out of your way for someone. Stop being a navel gazer. Be a servant of the Most High God. Look, Jesus loves his people with a love eternal. It's a love that's divine. And that means that Jesus will, will never leave us or forsake us. He will hold us dear in his heart as his virtuous bride. We have to remember that. So should we not serve his body, the saints? Notice what God tells us through Isaiah, in Isaiah forty-nine, fifteen. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget. Yet will I not, never forget thee. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So, can this be said of us? Do we love his own as he has loved them? Do we love one another? Do we really care about one another? Or is it just hi, goodbye? See on Sunday? Forget you all days of the week. Do we love him by loving his people? Or... Are we all about ourselves, simply devils and adversaries, caring only about ourselves, our life's agenda, and everything else that revolves around us? May God be pleased to send His spirit of self-examination into every one of us, and into everyone in the earshot of my voice, lest, as Paul says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. We pray that we are not reprobates, and that it is not I, but we are the servants of Christ who are willing to sacrifice and to suffer. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.